0: Welcome to We the Women. This is our celebration of the 19th Amendment. Exactly 100 years ago, on August 18th, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified, giving women the right to vote. To celebrate, we'll be talking to women from around South Carolina, thought leaders, movers and shakers. We'll ask them about how they have used their voice and what they have done to contribute to our great democracy. Enjoy the conversation. In this episode, Post and Courier education reporter Jenna Schifferell interviews Brigadier General Sally Seldon, Provost and Dean of the Citadel. Today I'm joined with Dr. Sally Seldon, who is Provost and Dean of the Citadel. Sally, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a big honor to be here.
0: Oh, I appreciate it. Um, I was kind of uh, very looking, very much looking forward to sort of diving in and, and learning more about your professional experience before you got to the Citadel and also um, reflect on 100 years, of uh, you know, since the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which is what brought you here in the first place. So I suppose I kind of will open up with that. Um, we're, you know, swiftly approaching um, the anniversary, and I, I think it means something different to every person that I've spoken to. Um, so when you kind of reflect in your life and, you know, this history, what does it mean to you to think about um, this important anniversary?
1: It's somewhat amazing to me to think that women have only had the right to vote for 100 years, I'll be honest. And, um, and as I was thinking about this conversation we're going to have today, I was trying to think back how many generations of women have voted in my family. And you know I go back three generations. And in fact, I was thinking that when my grandmother was born, she in fact wasn't able, she would not have been able to vote had it not been for the amendment. So I've always taken the... You know, I've always thought it's really important to vote, especially as a woman. When my children were very young, my first two kids were born in Syracuse, New York, and they have, in fact, been to Seneca Falls mm-hmm. um, and seen the museum when they were very small children. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense of how important I think it is and how much I value the opportunity for women to vote. They're, they're a powerful block. If you look at my, some of my academic research, it has looked at the impact of women in decision-making in organizations. Um, so I've always known the importance of women as decision makers and the value of voting really gave them an opportunity to have their voice at the polls. And, you know, I encourage all students to vote because it is important. That voice is very, very important.
0: You mentioned some of your, your research, mm-hmm. and um, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about that because you have a background in leadership studies as well as a, a business background as well. Tell me a little bit about um, about your career before you transition to the
1: Citadel? Well, I began as a, actually, when I went to graduate school, I had no intentions of ever becoming a faculty member. I had worked for the U.S. General Accountability Office. I thought, okay, I'm going to get my doctoral degree. I'll go back into into public service. That's really what I felt was my calling. I began to teach as a graduate student and fell in love with it, and I really enjoyed research. So for the first 20 years of my academic career, I was primarily a researcher and a teacher, and a faculty member, and I began to do some administrative work. So um, I was at the University of Lynchburg before, and I served in a number of different leadership roles, even serving as provost. I was there 19 years, a very long time. Um, I had the opportunity to kind of see the academic environment from lots of different perspectives. So I think that was really helpful for me as I moved into the provost role. And shifting to the Citadel was a bit of a change. You know, it's a very different environment. Um, But I found that really, having been a provost, it really helped me understand that, you know, a lot of the things you do as a provost regardless of the institution are pretty similar. Um, The setting at the Citadel was unique because you balance the sort of the focus on the academics, but really the focus on the leadership development piece. And that's actually what really drew me here. So as you talk about it, one of the things I was engaged with prior to coming was that a adopting a a doctoral program in leadership studies. And so I've done a lot of work with dissertation students um, around leadership questions across all different types of disciplines. So I think that's been really helpful.
0: And I know the Citadel has a a real emphasis, especially in recent years, on just leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like a core mission almost is to create graduates that have this, you know, ingrained in them, which I think is really interesting, especially when you think about... um, leadership studies as a program, I don't know much about it, but I think a lot of people might not even realize that that's a a discipline or like an academic discipline. It is. um, I think that's interesting that that your background ties in really well too.
1: Right. And what's really interesting is that, you know, I, I think about it from an academic perspective, but what really drew me to the Citadel is the experiential component of that leadership development for the cadets. Um, when I think about what the Citadel does for an 18 to 22-year-old in terms of preparing them to lead, it is incredible. I mean, I'll be honest. We, you know, they, they began by being followers, and the opportunities and the responsibilities increase with each academic year that they're at the Citadel, and it's very systematic. They're really prepared for that, right? So uh, you know, I, when I think back on my first leadership job, they give you a job title, and off you go. And you look around, and you think, hmm what am I to do here, right? So if you're not uh, assertive, fortunately, I'm a little bit assertive. I knew how to ask for help. You know, you would have found yourself sort of trying to figure out what to do if, if there weren't folks around. That is not the case. I mean, that's one of the things, and I think that's the reason we have such great outcomes, is that we're really intentional about preparing people for that next role. And, you know, I really wanted to see that, right? So I looked at the results, right? If you look at the projected outcomes for, if you look at our academic profile, what our graduates achieve, it's far greater than what you predict. So I'm also a statistician, right? So I'm a modeler. And so you have to wonder, okay, what, how is that possible? You know, what's happening in that environment? It didn't take me long to figure it out. Um, and so it's powerful because you've got the academic component because we have an academic leadership department, but it's also experiential. Um, it's a lived component. It's in the barracks. But it's also in our Kraus Center for Leadership and Ethics. You know, we're really um, careful about thinking about how do we provide training in the area of ethics? How do we help our cadets grapple with ethical issues? The Intertech Group and the Zucker family are proud to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment.
0: Another thing I want to talk to you about is that you're obviously you're second in command uh, at the Citadel, and that is um, pretty rare still, even today for for colleges, um, even more so mm-hmm. at a military college, which has, you know, been predominantly serving men for, for most of its history. Um, I was curious to hear um, your thoughts as to what that has meant to you kind of navigating this field as a, as a, as a person of power in academia, um, that's still predominantly, you know, centered around
1: men. If that makes sense. Oh no, it absolutely makes sense. And it's really interesting because um you know, I was served as a provost in my previous role, and it was also second-in-command, but it, car- it, it it felt differently than it does here. And I think that's because you've got this interesting intersection with rank in the military, and second-in-command here really means Something even more than it does at other institutions. Um, it's, an, it's, it's a big responsibility, I'll be honest, to be second in command. You know, you've got a lot of people counting on you. Um, you know, you've got a big responsibility to be not only operating at a high strategic level, but also to make sure that you're engaged in making sure that the operations are working pretty well. So it's, you know, it, as a woman in this position, I didn't really realize this until I took my previous role and I had women students come to me and say, I am so grateful that you're in this role because I've been looking for a role model, right? So from their perspective, it was an opportunity to see a woman who, and in fact, I'm you know I, I'm a professional woman, but I can tell you I'm also a mother, right? So I've spent my entire career; I've never had any time off, balancing multiple roles, and um, and you know to be able for people to say, "How did you do it?" and be able to share my story, I think that's been very powerful. But, you know, I do understand how fortunate I am to have this position. Um, I do value the position, the opportunity I have. I know how important it is to be collaborative. Um, Even if you are second in command, to me, it's really about moving the institution forward. And that can't happen without engaging with the folks that are are working at your level or working at the level below, or even the folks who are on kind of the front line, you know, the faculty and the staff are kind of doing the day to day um, teaching and service activities.
0: That you mentioned, it's been helpful for you to, to share your story with other people and to kind of serve as that role model. Um, my obvious next question is, well, how did you do it? <laughs> where you talk to these people about how do you balance your family um, and the demands of a really, really, you know, high energy, high stress uh, job where you have a lot of responsibility?
1: Yeah. That- that is a great question. I, and I will tell you, it has changed from the beginning when I had my first child. I always said I was late to the game of having kids. I had my first child at 32 and we moved really rapidly. So we, we, we had three sons under four. Uh, so which was, you know, and in fact, you'll appreciate this. I, I, my first son was born on Monday. I taught an eight hour class on Saturday. So um, I, you know I didn't take any time off when that when my first son was born and um and I was very fortunate to have a great partner, so I tell you part of my ability to to juggle family is to have an amazing partner who you know from the very beginning was very supportive of that um, but I made some career choices because of my kids, right so you know I was at a an a program in my field of study that was the number, the top program in the country. And when I had my first son, you know, I, you know, as I mentioned, I went right to work and I was balancing, trying to make sure that I was teaching my courses, engaged in my research at a high level, and, um, and also trying to be as effective of a mother as possible as you can for the first kid. And then my second son came and I thought, you know what, I need to really think about this. You know, what's most important to me? And ironically, I had an interesting exchange with um, my um my department chair, which really kind of had an impact on me. And I stepped back and said, you know what, at this point, I want, to, I want to try to find an environment where I can balance this life a little better. So I made a choice to come back to where I grew up um, so that my kids could be engaged with my parents and have a chance to have them in their life and kind of help with that balance. So, you know, a lot of family, a lot of support has enabled me to do it. Um, very little sleep and a lot of caffeine also helps, just so you know.
0: Wise words. <laughs> That's a good formula right there. Yeah. Um, when you think about I, I still find it interesting that the Citadel as a college first admitted female cadets, female students, um, not that long ago, like mid 90s. Absolutely. What are you what are your thoughts now when you think about from that point to where we are today? How is has how the college grown?
1: Well, you know, we've made a lot of progress in terms of increasing the percentage of female cadets. Um, This past year, we had the largest percentage of the incoming class that were women, um, which was really exciting. Um, We've also increased the percentage of our faculty who are women, which is also helpful um, from attracting more women cadets. You know, we attract women who are interested in a challenge, right? And um, But if you look at the percentage of women at the Citadel compared to the service academies, we're somewhat, we're a little bit below where they are. So we have some opportunities to, c- to continue to recruit women. Um, we're building, you know, we're really trying to build um, a network for women cadets. And so we're trying to connect our women cadets with our female Faculty members and with our alumni. So, we're trying to build infrastructure and support. Um, Sometimes the concerns and needs differ based on gender. Um, You know, that's true no matter what your college environment is, whether it's the Citadel, whether it's a, um, a more traditional college environment. And so, you know, as we think about looking forward, I think we have a lot of opportunity. We've got a lot of majors that are very attractive to women. Um, and so I think we will continue to attract more women into our program. Um, and our women cadets do incredibly well. You know, last year our regimental commander was a woman. Um, that was an enormous achievement for her. And it was also, you know, a, a, an opportunity for us to really highlight um, our women cadets at the Citadel.
0: Have you ever had to wait three days for someone to service your copier? Does your office furniture belong in a museum? Are your meetings being disrupted by poorly installed and overly complicated conferencing and AV equipment? The Office People is proud to be the largest local provider of office technology, conferencing systems, audio-visual equipment, and office interiors in the Carolinas. We believe that locals do it better. Contact The Office People, the source for all your office needs. What is what is trying to recruit more female cadets? What does that look like and how, how do you do that?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, recruitment um, in the enrollment world is very interesting, right? So there's recruitment and there's marketing. Um, you know, probably one of the things that helped us most with marketing, and that is getting the word out about what it's like to be at the Citadel, was in fact having a regimental commander who was a woman. From a recruiting perspective, you know, we're always looking for opportunities for for women who might have an interest in the Citadel. Um, Athletics helps us, right? So we have women athletes who have an interest in coming, and that does help us. But maybe, um, you know, we're looking at women who've been engaged with ROTC at a high school level. You know, we're looking for women who have an interest in maybe a military career. Um, We might have women who have an interest in, um, you know, thinking about being a military doctor or a nurse. So, you know, it's really about identifying people young. Who might have an interest in pursuing a military career, or they really want the structure and the challenge of an environment like the Citadel.
0: Going back to kind of what we were discussing earlier about your trajectory and, and what brought you here, um, have, have you thought about if being a, a woman has in, presented more challenges um, as someone who would, who's on this career path um, compared to? someone who is, who identifies as a male because of, because of the way that
1: things have traditionally been? Um, or do you not, I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah. You know, that's a a really tough question. And I've thought a lot about it. Um, one of the nice things about higher education is typically, I think women feel like it's been a place where, you know, that there's been a lot of acceptance of women faculty. That was not the case 20 or 30 years ago. In fact, When I was a young assistant professor, um, I had a department that had an unusual number of women faculty members. It was really unusual, I was really lucky. So early on, I got a chance to be mentored by those women. That I think really helped me, right? So it really was empowering to me. I saw full professors who had been highly successful, very well regarded in the field, but very few of them had, had children which was interesting. And that goes back to that kind of dilemma, right? So, you know, who I'm as a professional, who I'm as a mother, you know. I always say some days I feel like I was a really great mom. Other days I felt like I was a really great professional. Some days I didn't know, you know, who I was serving really well. Um, So from that perspective, you know, there have been challenges. You know, I made that comment. I've, I've, I've had... You know, challenges, you know, I I I once had somebody said to me, that, you know, this is what happens when we hire young women. They have children. Right. So so throughout my career, I've had those cases. Um, but I've also had people who've said, you know what, you can balance this. Right. You, you know, we'll help you with it. So I do think gender has played a role. But for the most part in higher education, I have not. Now, um, coming into the Citadel, you know, it's we don't have as many women faculty, but that's not surprising. Um, um Given that the majority of our students are male, right, in a little bit of the history, but you know, for the women who are there, they're engaged. I think they they bring a lot um, of diversity and perspective, um, and they come from different disciplines, which I think is very powerful. Um, our engineering program has has really diversified its faculty. That we've hired a lot of women faculty in engineering, um, and we've seen a growth in our women engineering students. So. You know, I personally yes have I encountered challenges? Absolutely, um, but I would tell you I've had a lot of people who've been out there helping, helping me, encouraging me, tapping me on the shoulder, and you hear that. Like you know, one of my doctoral students um, did a fascinating. Uh, dissertation on women who rose in K through 12 into principals and superintendent roles. and the one factor she found that had happened for those women is most of them had been tapped on the shoulder and encouraged to pursue leadership roles and I would tell you that has happened to me throughout my career um, and you know and as she as she had learned these stories from these different women, it really resonated not only in terms of my own experiences but some of the stories I'd heard from other women in higher education.
0: Mm-hmm. And going off the idea of whenever it was a transition, it was a big shift. I mean, you've been in higher ed for you know more than 20 years, um, but still coming to the Citadel um, was still a, a, sh- a shift because um, it's a it's a military college and there, mm-hmm. aren't there, there are very many of those to begin with. Um, did you, how did you kind of approach, uh, did you have any sort of military background or did you have to kind of learn on the job about? how the inner rankings and how all those intricacies that come along with a military college, I
1: suppose. Yeah, so personally, I'd never served in the military. Um, My dad had been in the Navy, um, you know, so he did not spend his career, was out before I was born. Um, So, but I had heard stories from him over the years as well as some other family members. I had worked at the U.S. General Accountability Office and actually one of my first jobs was to evaluate officer succession programs. And so I'd had an opportunity to go to all the academies and look at ROTC programs. So I had a really good sense of, you know, what military academies did. Um, probably the person that prepared me most um, was my former boss, um, the president at the University of Lynchburg. He had been in the reserve his whole career. And he really, he spent a lot of time helping, you know, preparing me to understand the language, teaching me how to salute. Um, you know, he was so proud. He thought it was such an enormous honor um, for me to have this position. And 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 as I mentioned, I mean, it, 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 that just gets you really excited. So when I came, I was really excited, a little bit intimidated, you know, but everybody was so helpful. You know, I I know how important the uniform is um, and I know how important it is to wear that uniform. And I wanted to make sure that when I came, that I, I wore that uniform in a way that reflected that pride. Um, and so, and again, you know, for people who've been doing it their entire careers, they know how to do it. And, and when you're brand new, it, makes you, it does make you just a little bit nervous. Um, there are lots of acronyms that I'm still learning um, all the time. Um, and so I feel like, in a way, I've had a, a whole nother college degree in the last year. Um, but, you know, I, I would tell you, everybody's been incredibly helpful. Um, I have learned so much. You know, I always tell people it's the power bringing two different areas together. It's the best of what we have in higher education, and it's the best of what happens in the military. And it is a different combination when you bring those two things together in terms of the academic experience, um, but also, I think, in terms of the military experience because, you know, we can really learn from each other.
0: I, When I was preparing for this interview, I watched um, another interview that you had done Um not long after I think you got in the position. And I remember you saying um, in your career, typically you would call them a presentation, but it's right. called briefing. briefings. That's so right. It's like those sort of um, little things, I guess, that you kind of have to learn on the job. Um, but you also can prepare, obviously, and study for some things. But
1: That's you know, absolutely. A job. And I have to tell you, um, the cadets were able to teach me how to fire a cannon. Oh, really? <laughs> yes.
0: That,
1: no, that's something that you'd never expect to do, I suppose. No. No
0: academia on that track, but that's really
1: cool. And, you know, and I'm so impressed with how much responsibility there is on the cadets who have to, who, who, who are responsible for firing the cannons, right? it goes back to my point. There's a lot of responsibility we give our cadets, um, but there's a lot of preparation for them in, in those responsibilities.
0: Absolutely. Um, I wanted to obviously address um, something that we're all kind of facing right Mm -hmm. now and that every every college in the nation is, is kind of trying to grapple with, especially right now, um, as they try and prepare to welcome students back in the fall amid a global pandemic, um, what has been the challenge for you? I mean, I'm sure there are dozens, um, but what is the biggest challenge for you trying to to grapple with this as you oversee you know all the academics at the Citadel and try and do that safely um, in the fall?
1: Yeah, you know. If I were to say, what is the biggest challenge is how much information is shifting and changing and trying to respond to and making sure we're creating environments that are safe and healthy for both our cadets and our students and our faculty and staff, right? So that's really tough because we want to make sure that we are providing the type of education experience that our cadets and students deserve, right? At the end of the day. Um, on the other hand, we know that it can't look like it used to, right? So, you know, we're, we are doing things entirely differently, and which requires a ton of planning. The biggest challenge is, is getting everybody, you know, getting the plans in place, and then making sure we're evolving those plans as information comes to us and changes, right? So we, you know, we want our cadets to come back. We want our students to be back on campus. That's really important to us. And so we are making sure that we're setting the right conditions, and it's getting those conditions down, right? So. And in the beginning, you know, there's a shortage of supplies, right? So you're, you're, you are desperately trying to make sure you've got your supply chain worked out, right? So it, it's also ensuring that you've thought about how do we move people through, right? We have to rethink how we do housing, right? We have to th- rethink how we deliver services. We've got to train faculty because now we're gonna be doing, you know, we're gonna have faculty some classes because in order to ensure social distancing, you're going to have to make sure you've got enough space so you're going to have to rotate students so it's you know so so what's the biggest challenge it's just keeping up with the information keeping up with the, the guidance and making sure what we're doing are best practices right because we want to make sure we're the safest conditions possible
0: and i remember sitting in uh, on a virtual board meeting a while back and at least the initial projections showed that enrollment was still looking pretty it
1: is strong. it is, is that, still the case? that is absolutely the case um, we are looking to bring in um, our knob class, and our projections are—you know—we were we're hoping to bring in a class of 700. You know, just last Monday we were sitting at 744. Um, so we're on track to bring a full class in for the fall semester. Our retention numbers look very good. Um, we've got students registered and enrolled for fall. Um, you know, we're 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 now trying to figure out. You know, we're just hoping that our—you know—we can keep our numbers where they are and they don't grow. Um, because of because of our housing so yes we're we're honestly and we're excited to get people back to campus it's been lonely without the cadets and the students on campus
0: yeah i believe it and I, I think other colleges especially in the area are, are grappling with the same exact things mm-hmm. right now we're a very um, interesting point in terms of you know the virus is spreading but it's manageable, at least colleges seem to think so. Um, but we're at a delicate moment, I
1: think. We are at a delicate moment. And, you know, and I think a lot of people thought, oh, gosh, the hardest thing we've ever done was putting classes all online last March, right? For a lot of faculty, that was really something they'd never imagined doing. You know, the challenge of bringing people back and trying to do, try to have classes where we're blending online and face-to-face is probably going to be equally as hard, if not harder, for faculty and staff.
0: Absolutely. Um I wanted to kind of bring it back full circle mm-hmm. um, before I let you go. Is there anything or any advice that you would give to young women who are hoping to pursue a career in academia and, and maybe eventually want to get to a leadership position? Um, what, what, what's the best piece of advice that either someone told you or that you would give to other young women starting out in their, with their career?
1: Well, first of all, do it. Mm-hmm. Higher education uh, academia is a great career path. So no question about it. It is it is a place that you can find and achieve anything you want to. Um, you know, I think most importantly is lean into it. You know, there have been times throughout my career where I've been hesitant, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking I'm not really sure I want to take on this responsibility. I'm trying to balance everything. Um, but I think the power of leaning in and taking advantage of those opportunities, you know, you're going to face all these incredible crossroads, right? But as you're thinking about your career, just lean forward. Find mentors, right? Find scholars in the field of study you're interested in and work with them. Um, you know, find people who've been able to achieve at the level you want to. And when that leadership opportunity comes, don't hesitate take it, because I think what you're going to find is you're going to get the support. And you know, in higher education, women try to provide a lot of support for other women. Um, so, you know, we want to encourage other women to pursue those leadership positions. So, you know, do it, don't be afraid of what's coming, lean in and use your voice because people will listen.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that was about all that I have for you. I can't thank you enough for, um,
1: for joining me here today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you very much.
0: It's uncommon for a paper the size of the Post and Courier to have dedicated health reporters the way that we do. I think the Post and Courier has a keen ability to take the long view and to think through what stories are going to be the most important. We're able to take on some really complicated topics and make them understandable for people. Some of these topics are ones that the community might not know about otherwise unless the Post and Courier decided to write about them.
1: We the Women is a special series of the Post and Courier in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. To enjoy all 19 interviews, visit postandcourier.com backslash we the women.